The need to understand the interplay of atmosphere and oceans has been given a new sense of urgency by the realization that our energy-consuming way of life may be causing climatic changes with adverse consequences for us all. Maybe causing changes. Well, well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That was 1961. But it was Shell Oil. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. So yeah, they knew what they were talking about. We should have paid attention. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for your listening convenience on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Burden Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow. Says me and everyone I know (laughs) from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Keep those laughs to yourself, Desi Doyen. (laughs) Who asked you? Welcome to the Bradcast. Uh, We have reported on it uh, on on, uh, the Green News Report with the... chuckling Desi Doyen over there. Uh, We reported on it this week, but we haven't really been able to properly underscore the shockwaves, really, that are now being felt this week across the globe by what is now being described by the fossil fuel industry as Black Wednesday, when three of the biggest oil majors, Royal Dutch Shell, Chevron, and ExxonMobil, all face some pretty serious accountability, some pretty serious consequences, arguably for the first time, from either a courtroom or a boardroom last week, all on the same day uh, when it comes to their role in our worsening climate emergency. So we've covered on it, we've covered it, but uh, not as deeply as I would like to. We will make up for that deficiency shortly when we are joined by someone who played a key role in at least one of those three landmark events that all took place on the same day, the one in this case that took place in a courtroom. He will join us momentarily. Of course, you are not to blame if you didn't fully understand what happened on Black Wednesday, given all of the other madness that is ongoing in this country. Much <laughs> There's of it, so much of it. Yes, it, and a lot of it still emanating, Des, from... A political party that seems to sort of slowly be cracking into pieces. I don't know, maybe not that slowly. Uh, and or attempting a full-on coup against American democracy. Take your pick. 
Of course, the main coup leader and plotter, incredibly enough in this case, is the former president of the United States himself, who seems to consider himself, I guess, to be still the current president of the United States. But he's just exiled uh, to Mar-a-Lago in Florida or Bedminster, New Jersey, to his golf course resort for the time being, at least until, well, that will all change he is telling people, about two months from now, as he apparently actually sees it. A few days ago, the New York Times' Maggie Haberman reported on Twitter that Donald Trump, quote, has been telling a number of people he's in contact with that he expects he will be reinstated as president of the United States uh, apparently by August. So you can set uh, mark it down in your calendars now. <laughs> yeah. In in response to that, right winger Charlie Cook of the very right wing National Review reported on Thursday that many figures on the right inserted their fingers into their ears and started screaming about fake news in response to uh, Haber- Haberman's report. Instead, he writes, they should have listened. He says because Haberman's reporting was correct. He writes, I can attest from speaking to an array of different sources that Donald Trump does indeed believe quite genuinely that he, along with former Republican Georgia U.S. Senators David Perdue and Martha McSally, will be, quote, reinstated to office this summer after, quote, audits of the 2020 election in Arizona, Georgia and a handful of other states have been completed. I can attest to, writes Cook, that Trump is trying hard to recruit journalists, politicians and other influential figures to promulgate this belief, not as a fundraising tool or an infantile bit of trolling or a trial balloon, but as a fact. The scale of Trump's delusion is quite startling, notes Cook. This is not merely an eccentric interpretation of the facts or an interesting foible, nor is it an irrelevant example of anguished post-presidency chatter. It is a rejection of reality, a rejection of law, and ultimately a rejection of the entire system of American government. There is no reinstatement clause within the United States Constitution, he writes. The election has been certified. Joe Biden is the president, and until 2024, that is all there is to it. It does not matter what one's view of Trump is. It does not matter whether one voted for or against Trump. It does not matter whether one views Trump's role within the Republican Party favorably or unfavorably. We are talking here, he says, about cold, hard, neutral facts that obtain irrespective of one's preferences. It is not too much to ask that the former head of the executive branch should understand them, he writes. Well, actually, yes, it is, Charlie. (laughs) You know, did you just arrive here from another planet? If so, welcome to Earth. I hope you enjoy it before it gets too hot to live on. He goes on to say, uh, just how far out there is Trump's theory? Consider that even if it were true that the 2020 election had been stolen, which it is absolutely not, his belief would still be absurd. 
It could be confirmed tomorrow that agents working for a combination of Al-Qaeda and Venezuela and George Soros had hacked into every single voting machine in the country and altered the totals by tens of millions. And it would still remain the case that there is no mechanism within the American legal order for a do-over of any sort. In such an eventuality, he says, there'd be indictments, an impeachment drive, a constitutional crisis. But however bad it got... Donald Trump would not be, quote, reinstated to the presidency. That's not how America works. It's how America has ever worked or how America can ever work, he says. American politicians do not lose their reelection races only to be reinstalled later on, as might the second place horse in a race whose winner was disqualified. The idea, he says, is otherworldly and obscene. Yeah, well, you know, hey, good new slogan for the Republican Party, Charlie. (laughs) Otherworldly and obscene. GOP, otherworldly and obscene. Why not? He concludes to acknowledge that Trump is living in a fantasy world, does not wipe out his achievements or render anything else he has said incorrect. It does not endorse Joe Biden or hand the Republican Party over to Bill Kristol. I guess he's the right's favorite Republican never-Trumper at this point. Or knock down an inch of the wall on the border. It merely demands that Donald Trump be treated like any other person, subject to gravity, open to rebuttal, and liable to be laughed at when he becomes so unmoored from the real world that it is hard to know where to begin in attempting to explain him. So that's Charlie Cook writing at the National Review, the very right-wing National Review, perhaps a few years too late, trying to knock some sense into his own party's delusional dreams that Donald Trump is going to be reinstated this summer after post-election forensic audits like the clown show still underway, by the way, by the cyber ninjas in in Arizona and you know they are planning for this to spread to Georgia and Pennsylvania and Michigan Wisconsin elsewhere and they seem to believe that the results uh, as soon as they are revealed to be fraudulent and uh, that Trump really had the election stolen from him by Joe Biden and the Democrats and Dominion voting systems and dead Hugo Chavez in China or whatever they seem to believe that this is actually what is going to happen within the next few weeks or months. And if you listen to right-wing media, this is what they are telling each other right now. This is, they actually believe this. So is, is Trump delusional from watching too much of this right-wing media, too much war room pandemic hosted by Steve Bannon? Does he really believe this nonsense? Is, is he really you know, getting high on his own supply at this point? Or is there another reason for this new I'm going to be reinstated in August nonsense? Of course, I don't know. You don't know. Nope. Desi doesn't know. Do you know? You <laughs> God, don't know? No, I have no, no way of knowing what on earth is going on inside any of their minds. They're all crazy, it well, seems like. Well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe crazy like a fox. Oh. Maybe crazy like Fox News. I don't know. I really don't. You can, you know, make your own decision here about what the hell is going on. But Seth Abramson, criminal defense attorney and Donald Trump biographer, He offers actually an interesting take on all of this that, frankly, kind of sounds anyway like it like it makes some sense. And I don't know if you have read this or not. No. 
you know, I, I have no idea how delusional Trump really may have become over the past several months as he hides away in, in, in Mar-a-Lago. I, I, but I don't actually think that he is either that stupid or that insane. Sort of supporting Abramson's theory here, which he tweeted in a three-part thread on Thursday. He tweets, Trump is talking about an August return to the White House because he thinks... He'll be indicted soon. Oh, I see. As a Trump biographer, Abramson writes, I can say this is the thinking most in line with his history. He's setting the table to try to forestall an indictment with the implicit threat of violence. Abramson says Trump believes if he can whip his supporters into a frenzy this summer via rallies, the big lie and a false belief that he's a belief that he's about to be reinstalled in the White House. It somehow decreases the ease with which authorities can indict, prosecute and ultimately imprison him. Kind of makes sense. That actually does. Uh, That's th- very logical. He says a malignant, narcissistic, sociopath, uh, sociopathic would be strong men always act this way when they finally face accountability they ramp up the threat of violence significantly by ramping up the anger and the paranoia of their supporters trump is no different from saddam hussein in this respect so yeah that theory kind of makes some sense to me i agree that really does you know uh it's hard to know is 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 trump actually delusional or is this his latest and greatest scam to try and avoid accountability by pretending if and when he's indicted that oh this was you know all a great joe biden democratic party deep state scam to prevent him from being reinstated as president of the United States so that, you know, his angry MAGA mob will storm the barricades if that happens. Is that what's going on here? I don't know. But frankly, that kind of makes sense. And given his madness and his willingness, frankly, to do anything at this point, to try and stay out of jail, to do anything he can think of, You know, I don't think he's insane. I think he knows exactly what he's doing. And I think Abramson's uh, theory here deserves some consideration. So I just wanted to sort of toss it out there. Yeah, that makes a a, a lot of sense to me that he would uh, and then the people around him as well would try to use this to whip up that frenzy in order to also partially intimidate officials that would be in charge of this to say, you better maybe should back off those. Yeah, you you better not indict him. He's about to be installed as president and everyone's going to think it's, uh, you know, a big scam, a big hoax if you do indict him. So anyway, Throwing it out there. Feel free to send me your thoughts. Maybe we'll talk about this in the days ahead. Uh, You can email me. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. Hopefully we will find some more time to talk about it, as I'm sure the madness will continue to unfold. (laughs) Oh, yes. That's guaranteed. But but, uh, to echo Charlie Cook, uh, speaking of a rejection of reality, as Cook described it, Cook himself and his National Review and his own political party and his no longer president at all, they have all been at the forefront now for years of the rejection of reality. It's kind of fun to see Cook now calling it out, but he's been right there with him for years when it comes to climate change and rejecting that reality. But you know who uh, who hasn't been rejecting the science of climate change? The fossil fuel industry themselves. 
But they were funding that rejection and that denial publicly. The underreported story of last week's Black Wednesday is straight ahead on the Bradcast. I hope you'll stick around. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is supporting you and the things that you care about. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. Right now, as much as ever. If you choose to support us, you can do it really easily, safely, and quickly via brandblog.com donate. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. So three years ago on this program, we had Carol Muffett, president and CEO of the Center for International Environmental Law, or CL, as they call themselves, as a guest on this program to talk about a remarkable report that the group had issued at the time after unearthing decades-old documents from Royal Dutch Shell, Shell Oil, revealing that as far back as 1958, the company's scientists were becoming very alarmed about the fossil fuel-related science behind climate change. Their report uh, had followed on another report, which got a lot more attention at the time, that Exxon had known about the dangerous risks of climate change due to the burning of their products back in the uh, as early as the 70s and, and certainly by the 80s, before they decided to spend a whole lot of money lying about it to the public to try and convince the world and, yes, their own shareholders that global warming was little more than a hoax. Well, obviously it is not a hoax, and not only Exxon, but also Shell knew about it for decades earlier than previously understood. In 1962, CL's report discovered through a treasure trove of internal Shell Company documents that Shell's chief geologist acknowledged the human and environmental risks of global warming and highlighted calls by other scientists to increase reliance on solar energy. Quote, there is evidence that the greatly increasing use of the fossil fuels is seriously contaminating the Earth's atmosphere with CO2, wrote Marion King Hubbard, that's Shell's chief geology consultant and director of its research labs, back in 1962. Citing the reports from an academic climate professor, he wrote, this could have profound effects both on the weather and on ecological balances, he said. In view of the dangers of atmospheric contamination by both the waste gases of the fossil fuels and the radioactive contaminants from nuclear power plants, he wrote uh, in 1962, citing an academic report at the time, he said, Professor Hutchinson urges serious consideration of the maximum utilization of solar energy. So, yes. Shell Oil knew both about the problem and the solutions to the problem as long ago as 1962 and maybe back into the 50s. Well, in 1991, 
That is now about 30 years ago. They actually produced a documentary warning about all of these concerns and that it would be too late if action was not taken quickly to do something about this problem. Warning about global warming in in this 1991 documentary called Climate of Concern. The need to understand the interplay of atmosphere and oceans has been given a new sense of urgency by the realization that our energy-consuming way of life may be causing climatic changes with adverse consequences for us all. Change too fast, perhaps, for life to adapt without severe dislocation. What they foresee is not a steady and even warming overall, but alterations to the familiar patterns of climate and the increasing frequency of abnormal weather. Nineteen Yeah, they were absolutely on target with that. Yeah, but nonetheless, just a few years later, Shell would also reverse course, join with Exxon and other major oil companies spending millions to convince the public that all of this was just a big hoax, that there was nothing to worry about, that climate change didn't exist, or if it did, it was only because the climate is always changing. You know, all of those things that you still hear Republicans and Fox News parroting today. But of course, unlike Fox News viewers, Royal Dutch Shell knew that it was all a lie and that the normal use of their products, the burning of fossil fuels to power cars and power plants, etc., was a huge risk to life itself on the planet. But of course, for companies like Shell, short-term returns for shareholders is much more important than life itself on the planet, silly you. That deadly Shell game may have just come to a screeching halt, however, in a Dutch courtroom just last week in a landmark ruling that climate activists are describing as an earthquake, as a shockwave. And it came on the very same day that those same investor shareholders that Shell was so worried about also themselves turned on both ExxonMobil and Chevron all on one day. Carol Muffett of the Center for International Environmental Law, whose work played a key role in that landmark court ruling against Shell, just over a week ago, joins us next to discuss the very big new problems in both the courtroom and the boardroom for Shell, Exxon, and Chevron, and the shockwave that struck on what the fossil fuel industry is now describing as Black Wednesday. That's next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. skies smiling at me nothing but blue skies do I see <laughs> blue birds 
Desi Doyen, remember when all the cars were off the road because of the lockdowns and the pandemic and the skies were nothing but blue? Oh, yes. Maybe we'll see that again someday soon. Yeah. That would be nice, uh, especially with, well, what happened uh, last week. You know, there's a lot going on right now in the news, including the still ongoing recovery from the COVID pandemic, the seeming crack up and or slow motion coup of the Republican Party and much more in what used to be the so-called slow new day news days of summer. Well, uh, welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com, where we have been covering this, those stories and this other one as best as we can on this program and on our Green News Report. A fairly huge landmark event took place last week. Three of them, in fact, all on the same day. And uh, these have received much less attention than all of the other madness that is ongoing. But this could ultimately prove to be collectively a much larger story than all of that other nonsense in the months and particularly in the years ahead. The world's patience with the fossil fuel industry is now wearing thin. The UK's Guardian reported over the weekend this was the stark message delivered to major international oil companies in what The Guardian calls an unprecedented day of reckoning, now being described as the oil industry's Black Wednesday for their role in the planet's worsening climate crisis. In a stunning series of defeats for the oil industry, they report, over the course of less than 24 hours a week ago Wednesday, courtrooms and boardrooms turned on the executives at Shell, ExxonMobil and Chevron all in one single day. Shell was ordered by a court in The Hague to go farther, much farther, to reduce its climate emissions, while shareholder rebellions in the U.S. imposed emissions targets at Chevron and a boardroom overhaul at Exxon, where we just learned yesterday that now three of four so-called activist candidates for the company's board of directors were elected by shareholders to sit on ExxonMobil's 12-person board, displacing at least three candidates that Exxon had lobbied very, very hard for. Mark Lewis, the chief sustainability strategist at BNP Paribas Asset Management, said, quote, There is no doubt that this week's news has been not so much a shot across the bows as a direct hit to the hull of big oil, adding they will have to recognize now that no amount of patching up that hole will do. Shareholders and society want the vessel completely overhauled. For climate campaigners, The Guardian reports, the oil industry's Black Wednesday marked a turning point in the financial and legal consequences awaiting oil companies that do not act fast to take accountability for their role in preventing a climate catastrophe. Jasper Chulings, the former general counsel for Greenpeace International, describing the Dutch court's order against Royal Dutch Shell, said, quote, It was honestly a really emotional moment. It makes clear that the onus is on the industry to act and that it can be held accountable to take very specific steps. We're seeing a convergence of issues, he said, because climate issues are human rights issues. I don't see any reason why these arguments won't be replicated elsewhere, he said. Polluters can expect to see their day in court. 
Within days of the oil industry's so-called Black Wednesday reckoning, credit rating agency Moody's warned that the credit risk of the major oil producers had increased as the convergence of financial risk with the long-held concerns of climate activists could prove to be a crucial tipping point against so-called climate action cynics. For longtime campaigners, including Tulings, the compounding implications of these three remarkable climate victories of the last week offer a rare opportunity, very rare opportunity, for optimism. He noted, quote, anyone who cares about the climate has felt times of panic and despair and helplessness. Tell me about it, Jasper. Going on to uh, to call the Shell ruling a, quote, beacon of hope, adding it is what we have been waiting for. Well, this sounds important. Joining us now to explain how important all of this is or isn't, these three major, what I'm going to describe as accountability events for three of the world's largest and most polluting oil companies all coming on the same day, is Carol Muffett, president and CEO of the Center for International Environmental Law, or CL, a nonprofit organization which describes itself as using the power of law to protect the environment, promote human rights, and ensure a just and sustainable society. Sounds like a big win for them as well. Carol Muffet, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. It has been a while since we spoke. Thanks so much for having me, Brad. Uh, you know, I want to sort of walk through, if you don't mind, the, the general details of the uh, three quite major events for each of these companies. Shell, Exxon, Chevron, all happening on the same day. But the last time you were on this program, I, I believe it was about three years ago now, it was to discuss CL's stunning revelations regarding the fact that Royal Dutch Shell knew about the serious concerns of climate change caused by the use of their products as long ago as 1958, with the company, as we discussed at the time, well aware of the dangerous consequences of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere caused by the burning of oil. And then as late as as early as 1962, as the documents you unearthed revealed, the company even urged internally for a, quote, serious consideration of the maximum utilization of solar energy. And then about 30 years ago, in 1991, actually produced a documentary warning about all of these concerns, saying it would be too late if action wasn't taken quickly. And then, of course, they had a screeching U-turn, and the company went, to, went on to join Exxon and the others in spending millions to support the climate change denial movement. So I am just guessing here, Carol, but I suspect the ruling by the Dutch court against Shell in particular this week was a very satisfying one for you and CL? This last week has been nothing short of extraordinary. It's been a watershed moment for the industry and a watershed moment for those of us who've been working for decades to hold the industry accountable, not only for its past, but what for what its business models mean for the future. And I think that is what's so remarkable about the convergence of, on the one hand, the Shell case, mm -hmm. and on the other, the, 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 the board actions and the AGM actions at Exxon and at Chevron, mm -hmm. is, that, is that liabilities that we've been warning about for a decade, uh, responsibilities we've been warning about for a decade, and financial risks that we've been warning about for a decade, are finally no longer fringe, they are mainstream. And now it's investors and courts 
saying to these companies what we've been saying for a very long time. And I want to talk about uh, where all of this goes from here, but let's sort of step through these three different uh events i guess rulings and votes so far uh, and so forth let me let's start with shell what did the court actually rule in the case against royal dutch shell this decision should be sending shockwaves through the oil and gas industry it is really hard to understate its significance mm. the the shell court basically concluded a series of five things which taken together have extraordinary consequences for global oil and gas production. First is the Shell Court recognized that climate change has serious implications for human rights and that those human rights impacts create duties not only for governments but for private companies. And then in a, in a step forward that a lot, not a lot of reporting has noted, the court actually then applied the 1.5 degree scientific consensus as the standard that defines those duties and mm -hmm. defines Shell's responsibilities. And so here you have a court actually bringing its own rulings into line with a growing scientific consensus that we cannot go above 1.5 degrees. Um, next, you know, so that itself would have been significant, but the next three things the court concluded mm -hmm. um, are what will send, will have ramifications for the industry as a whole. The first was that Shell was responsible for bringing its emissions in line with 1.5 degrees, not only in the Netherlands, but for Shell subsidiaries around the world, more than 1,100 of them. And this means that multinational oil companies can no longer hide behind complex legal structures and post box, you know, post, post box subsidiaries that are registered in, in countries of convenience. What, what the Shell Court said very explicitly was that Shell is responsible for the operations and the emissions of its subsidiaries mm. around the world. So, so even because there was some concern, the Guardian reports that oil industry pundits are warning that uh, forcing Shell to cut its uh, fossil fuel production here essentially is, I think, what what ends up happening. That instead, that Shell would simply shift its barrels of oil to smaller private oil companies and larger state-owned oil giants uh, with little impact on global emissions. You seem to be suggesting that the court says, no, they can't do that either, that uh, even the companies that Shell works with will also have to reduce their emissions. Is that is that well, true? And this is, this is the next really significant thing in, in the court's ruling. I mean, first is the court said that Shell can't simply get rid of emissions in one part of the country by company by shifting them to another part of the company. Uh -huh. But even more importantly than that, the, the court held that Shell is responsible for all of the emissions that result from its operations. And that includes not only the emissions that come from Shell pulling the oil out of the ground, mm -hmm. but the much greater emissions that come when those the oil and gas are sold and burned. And this is really important because the court is effectively saying, as we've been saying for decades, that the oil industry is responsible for what are called scope three emissions, the emissions that come when someone burns the oil and gas that they sell. And for Shell, that is 85% of their total climate impact. And so yeah. what the court is saying is it's not enough 
to reduce the, the emissions associated with producing the oil, you effectively have to produce less oil. Oh. And, this, and this is what, I think this is the really important you know, takeaway for Shell and other oil majors, is that the court looked at these realities, looked at the need for Shell to cut its global emissions by 45% by 2030, and drew the very reasonable conclusion that this means Shell is going to have to make significant changes in its business model, including significant changes in what it invests in. And this, this decision came just a week after the International Energy Agency acknowledged yeah. for the first time yeah. that the only way to keep the world below 1.5 degrees is to immediately halt new oil and gas development. Yeah, and as we've been reporting, the International uh, Energy Agency is no, uh, you know, lefty pinko tree hugger agency. They've supported the the uh, fossil fuel industry for years, and their change of outlook uh, is, yeah, is also a huge moment. Carol Muffet, you, when you say that uh, Shell would now have to be responsible not just for their own part in this, but in other words, you're saying that if I go to a Shell gas station, fill up my car burn their gas and put emissions out into the atmosphere. That is something that the court said Shell should somehow be accountable for as well? Not just as well, but Shell Shell is the company that is pulling the oil out of the ground and putting it into the market. Uh-huh. And it's really important it's really important to recognize that when you use oil and gas in precisely the way that you're supposed to use them the emission of carbon dioxide is an inevitable result. Mm-hmm. Emitting carbon dioxide is what happens when everything in that process goes perfectly. <laughs> and so it is completely appropriate that the companies be responsible for this, the, the emissions of this pollutant for the, from their products mm-hmm. in the way they're responsible for the emissions of other pollutants from their products. And going back to you know, the, the early knowledge of the industry, I think what's really remarkable is here is we have documents from Shell Oil from the late 1950s and 1960s Mm -hmm. saying to the U.S. government, yes, we as industry know we're responsible (laughs) for the tailpipe emissions that come from burning our products. So here you find the courts finally catching up to what the companies themselves knew half a century ago. Yeah, it's amazing. And and that may be one of the reasons why we've also been reporting that the uh, oil companies seem to be trying to change their, their their disinformation from denial to blaming the consumer. Oh, it's all your fault. You're driving that car. No, as the court, at least uh, the Dutch court decided, it's the oil company's fault. The, the company, uh, Shell, in this case, has reportedly described the ruling as disappointing. They plan to appeal. And yet at the same time, as I understand it, Shell has said that they support the goals of the Paris Climate Accord to cut emissions to avoid a one and a half degree uh, average rise in global temperatures and the worst effects of climate change. But as the former Greenpeace attorney Jasper Tulings noted, if Shell truly believe that their strategy aligns with Paris, then there should be no problem complying with the court's demands. He said that Shell's decision to appeal is irreconcilable. With that notion, charging therein lies the lie. Does uh, Tulings have it right there? And, and, and how does Shell, which frankly has talked a big and, and pretty loud game in recent months about their concerns about climate change suddenly, how, how do they square that circle? Well, I would say that those of us who have looked at the business plan, the long-term business projections 
for Shell, for Exxon, for other major oil producers, have noticed a pretty profound gap between what they're saying in their marketing materials mm. and what they're selling to investors. Mm. And I think that you know it's all it's all well and good for Shell to say that it supports the idea of of the Paris Agreement as a as a as a matter of marketing and public relations. But the real measure of its support is what its business projections are saying about how it's going to alter its alter its mm. business. And if you look at, at what those projections have been, even up until this year, they are projections that are premised on the idea that the world will go on producing and burning ever greater quantities of oil and gas mm-hmm. and petrochemicals and plastics for decades into the future, and that the emissions from that oil and gas will simply disappear through the magic, magic of carbon capture and storage <laughs> and carbon dioxide removal and other you know, really, really clever accounting and marketing tricks that are really good at making carbon disappear off a company's books but do nothing to take it out of the atmosphere. Well, uh, speaking of investors and what these companies are selling, it seems like they ain't buying it quite as much anymore. It's Chevron and Exxon. Let's let's go to Chevron first. They faced accountability, not from a, a court, but from their very own investor shareholders who had a, a bit of a revolt in a vote against the company to support a climate resolution from a Dutch campaign group named Follow This. What was that? resolution and what does that now mean for Chevron with 60% of their own shareholders voting in support of this what we see with the decisions decisions both for Chevron and even more remarkably for Exxon is shareholders are moving from a, a position where they were engaging with the company and losing to engaging with the company and winning and the reason for that change is that shareholders and financial analysts and the financial press have for the last few years been seeing what what organizations like like Carbon Tracker and CL have been warning mm-hmm. for a decade, which is that the business models of these companies are fundamentally out of step with climate reality, and that can't be sustained over a very long time. It's important to recognize that if you look at the at the major oil and gas companies, they've been underperforming the they've been underperforming the S and P five hundred mm-hmm. for a decade, and they had even before the pandemic began, they were losing money, they were losing value, they had begun writing off massive billions of dollars in assets, and these were these were phenomena that were accelerated by the pandemic. And what's, what's become clear to a growing number of investors is that these business models are putting not only the planet, not only human rights, not only human lives on the line, but they're also putting investors' money on the line. And unfortunately, that's what it took to get investors engaged. Uh, sort of a two-part question here. How unusual is it, A, for shareholders to sort of turn against a company, as we see in the Chevron case, if, if this can be considered that? And how much of an impact, then, will this resolution actually have? How much will it actually impact Chevron's uh, Chevron management's decisions? In, in other words, you know, how, how binding is this uh, 60% vote against the company? Well, here's what's really important to recognize. You know, resolutions being brought by shareholders are not uncommon. 
But resolutions that have been brought on the basis of climate change or other environmental or social issues in the past mm -hmm. um, face extraordinary pushback from the company and the controlling institutions in the company. And so many shareholder resolutions are considered a success if they get 10, 20 percent of, of the total shareholder vote. So for a shareholder resolution to get 60 percent of the vote demonstrates an extraordinary shift in the, the weight of where the, the investors as a community are. You don't get 60 percent of a vote among the shareholders unless you've got 60 percent of the financial interest in the company aligned with your perspective. And so I think that changes the incentives and it changes the risks for company management rather profoundly. So it's fair to say this, this uh, is a shockwave for the uh, management at, uh, at Chevron? It should be. It should be a remarkable shockwave. It should be a wake-up call. And I think what's really notable is that this is, as, as we've been saying, the latest in a series of wake-up calls uh -huh. for these companies. And I think, you know, Exxon's resistance to engaging on climate change is what forced, I think, the biggest shakeup of them all. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, ExxonMobil shareholders, they also turned against the company in a vote uh, last week, including giant investment firms like uh, BlackRock and Vanguard, uh, to vote out, essentially, at least three of Exxon's preferred directors on the board, on their 12-person board. They replaced them with so-called activist board members from the recently formed investment group Engine Number no. 1. What What is Engine Number no. 1, and, and how much of a shockwave or an earthquake is this, in fact, given that, you know, Exxon will still have as many as uh, nine of their preferred directors uh, in the board's majority. Yeah, I think that, you know, I can't speak in detail to engine number one, other than noting that it is, you know, one of a rising number of investor coalitions that are speaking out on these issues. It's worth noting that in addition to engine number one, a coalition of Exxon investors, more than 130 large institutional investors had released a report days before the AGM noting that you're know, warning Exxon that its business model was fundamentally out of line with the Paris Agreement. And so, you know, engine, the, the success of engine number one is a reflection of this larger phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And it is true, it is true that four board members don't give you a controlling say on the board. But it is equally true that four board members um, make it a lot harder for the board to ignore the management responsibilities, the mm -hmm. fiduciary responsibilities, and the rapidly escalating risks to the company if it continues to ignore climate risks Mm. and it continues to operate its business as though those risks don't exist. But, uh, you mentioned uh, four candidates. There was, in fact, a, a fourth candidate uh, from Engine 1. It's unclear to me yet if that person actually lost or, or if votes are somehow still being counted. Presumably by Exxon itself, you know, uh, Carol Muffet, we, we cover elections and democracy a lot on this program. But to be frank, I don't know much about how these private shareholder elections actually go. Is there some form of public oversight of shareholder elections? Because as of now, Exxon uh, you know, just said, uh, yeah, it's in fact, it's not two, it's three, but it's unclear whether this uh, fourth candidate will actually be elected or not. Or, or do you know, have they said, no, that fourth candidate has lost? I, um, I, don't, I don't have an update on that fourth mm -hmm. candidate, but what I can say is these board elections are not 
by any stretch of the imagination, a democratic process. Mm -hmm. And nowhere is that clearer than in the reports from investors who were in the meeting that that Exxon, you know, there was an unexpected pause, hour-long pause, in the middle of the AGM, during which Exxon was individually pressuring investors to vote against engine number one and vote for Exxon's slate of candidates. Yeah, they stopped so you, the vote. They were like right in the middle of yeah. it, they sort of stopped the vote and said, hang on, hang on. And then they started calling all of their, I guess, their favorite shareholders to try to get them to change their votes. Yeah, so this is an, this is an approach to democracy that some recent presidential candidates might have enjoyed, but it's not an approach to democracy any of us would recognize. <laughs> the uh, Eli uh, Kazagord Staub, the executive director of Majority Action, a shareholder group, said after both the Chevron and Exxon votes, the quote, for the first time in history, responsible shareholders have breached the walls protecting recalcitrant boards of directors. Is that true? Is that how you see that? Is this kind of rebellion really that unusual for companies like these? I would say that yes, it is very unusual. As a, it, it's been unusual in the past. It's unlikely to be unusual in the future. And here's why: you mentioned you mentioned the the, the change in ratings from Moody's. What? what is you know what is striking here in hearing that is that is that in 2015, CL actually released a report directed at credit rating agencies, noting that credit rating agencies were not adequately assessing the risks of investments in fossil fuel companies mm-hmm. and assets. Mm-hmm. And so we start to see slowly the credit rating industry, you know, bringing its own practices into line with climate reality. At the same time, you know, I think it's also really fundamentally important to recognize Shellcase is a watershed, but it's not an endpoint. And in fact, days before the Shell court issued its decision, Citizens in Guyana filed a constitutional case there against uh, against the government for permitting Exxon to build what is it, it one of its largest oil and gas buildouts in the world, mm-hmm. and that Guyana case is again based on the idea and and on constitutional provisions in country that say that citizens have a human right to a healthy environment, and that that right extends not only to present generations but to future generations. Now those Guyanese, now those Guyanese citizens are going into court not only with a dossier full of evidence within Guyana itself, but with you know, with with in their hands the decisions from the IEA, the decisions from the court in in the Netherlands, the decisions from the Supreme Court in Norway. Mm-hmm. All of this evidence, all of this precedent is building, and at every stage, at every stage, citizens and attorneys and activists. And financial analysts in countries around the world are starting to, to see more clearly how these risks are adding up and starting to see how the cases against the companies are accumulating and accelerating. Yeah, I don't see how these companies don't run smack dab into a brick wall, uh, frankly. But, you know, and you mentioned the the, the credit rating agencies uh, taking an, another look at these companies. But, you know, I checked, uh, Carol Muffet, I checked all three of these companies, Chevron, Shell, and, and Exxon. I checked their stock prices today over the past week since Black Wednesday of last week on May 26th, and they are all up over their price on that day from you know from May 26 
uh, investors aren't running away yet, at least from these companies, it seems. Is it an overstatement to describe what happened last week as Black Wednesday for the fossil fuel industry since, well, they're all up at least over the past week? I, well, you know, what I would say on that is I've worked on these issues long enough and I've followed the financial state of this industry long enough to know that you don't measure success by what happens in the stock market over a few days or even a few months. Uh-huh. If you look at the longer-term trends facing this industry, the story is, is, is clear. There's a growing global consensus supported by overwhelmingly sci- overwhelming scientific evidence that the world must urgently stop investing in fossil fuel development. And that is the entire business model underlying many of these companies. And it's one of the reasons we see many of these companies, Exxon and Shell among them, and Chevron, investing heavily in plastics and petrochemicals as a get-out-of-jail card <laughs> as, demand for, as demand for oil and gas looks set to decline. Mm-hmm. And it's also why we see the industry really heavily promoting ideas like carbon capture and storage like the hydrogen economy, which are ways that they can go on selling oil and gas indefinitely and hope that nobody notices. Do you expect that what happened last week on Black Wednesday and and everything else that is still in the pipeline, if you will, to come against these companies, do you expect to see that they will, will they really change their behavior? I mean, you know, how much can they actually do beyond pretty much ending the sale of oil and gas at this point? Are they going to, you know, fight this to the to the dead end or are they really going to change their business models as now courts and shareholders seem to be demanding? I think it's really important to recognize that while people focus on the big moments, if you look at what these industries, these companies have been doing over the last couple of years, they have been writing off assets by the tens of billions. Mm. And they've continued, you know, just, just two days ago, Exxon backed out of another major investment in, in Ghana. Um, we see, we see these, we see companies selling off minor parts of their portfolio to focus ever tighter down on a handful of big global plays, which is why that litigation in Guyana is so important. And that brings me back to your fundamental question. Are these companies going to change? And the answer is they've shown no signs of changing yet. (laughs) But if they don't change, they're going to fail. And in the meantime, they're facing growing risks that they're going to be held accountable, not only for the climate, for the climate obstruction, for the climate denial and for the, for the climate impacts of the past, but they're going to be held accountable for what their business models are doing to the climate right now. And the unfortunate truth for the companies is, you know, the point at which they could deny any knowledge, deny any understanding of the risks uh-huh. of their operations, that point is gone. Yeah. And so any company, any company that is pushing for the development of new fossil fuels now is doing so in the clear and irrefutable understanding that it is supporting human rights violations. Mm on a massive and global scale. And unfortunately, any financial actor that is investing in those companies is becoming complicit in those violations. And I think this is the next frontier that you're going to start to see, both in the communications and in the litigation, is now that the companies know that they're responsible, and now that courts are recognizing it, financial actors that continue to support and facilitate 
these sort of gross human rights violations are going to find themselves being held accountable as well. Sounds like you are optimistic like Chulings that we are going to see more of these decisions in courts and more of these rebellions from shareholders in the days ahead. I would say that the entire future of these companies will be defined by litigation of one kind or another. And how long that future will last, I don't know. It's unlikely to outlast the litigation. (laughs) Well, I hope you are uh, outlast that litigation. Carol Muffett is president and CEO of the Center for International Environmental Law, or CL, as we call them. Uh, You can find them on the the web at ciel.org on the Twitters at C-I-E-L underscore tweets. And you can find Carol there personally as well at C Muffet, the number one. Carol Muffet, always great speaking with you, sir. Uh, Look forward to doing it again uh, in the near future as uh, more of these cases, I hope, are in the days ahead. Thank you, sir. It was great talking with you. Thanks. Okay, well, uh, you know, Des, I have been warning people, uh, get rid of your stocks, your your fossil fuel stocks. If you have them, get rid of them, because I think there is going to be, maybe it hasn't happened since Black Wednesday, but I think there's going to be an inflection point when suddenly, maybe all at once, everyone realizes there ain't no future for fossil fuel. And I think, you know, what we saw on Wednesday is starting to make that a reality, not just something that you and I have you know, warned people about on the Green News Report for the past 10 or 15 years. Yes, there is a huge issue with uh, trillions of dollars in potentially stranded assets from the mm-hmm. fossil fuel industry that, that once that reality hits, people are going to be very upset by that. It's a shame that the oil companies have been whistling past the graveyard to avoid diversifying all these years. Yeah. We have wasted they have wasted our time yes. in addressing this this crisis. Yeah, their uh, their time, uh, our time, their time, uh, their shareholders' money because those stranded assets that they're baking into their company's worth are suddenly you know going to be no longer good. Yeah, you might have access to all of these wells now, but not anymore. Not once everyone gets to electric cars. And that's going to change a lot <clears throat> in the financial industry. I hope we all uh, live to see that day. Uh, but it may be coming sooner than we think. We'll see. All right. Anyway, we got to get out. My thanks again to Carol Muffett of the Center for International Environmental Law and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, please uh, feel free to download it, share it with your friends and enemies alike uh, at bradblog.com. While you're there, feel free to click on one of them donate buttons or you can go straight to bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves because no matter how much we beg Shell Oil will just not sponsor this (laughs) program and I do not understand it so we do count on you drop me email if you like I am bradcast at bradblog.com on the Facebooks and the Twitters you will find me at the Brad blog I hope to see you there until we see you here next time I'm Brad Friedman good luck world (laughs) 